This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, with Mad Men returning Sunday for its final season, we'll be chatting with my old friend Carter Eskew, one of the legendary ad men of American politics and a founding partner of the powerhouse D.C. advertising, PR, lobbying, and polling firm, the Glover Park Group. As we begin to be flooded by midtown, midterm messaging and how much of the future of political advertising is shaped by the past. Then, talking about the past, we'll be diving deep into one of the greatest PR fights of all times, the fight for the four freedoms. FDR in 1941 made it the case for war, but a much bigger case for transformation of American society. On the other side, business interests who preferred the status quo uh, were fighting against it. So Harvey Kay, professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, is the author of a new book about what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. He'll be in studio asking whether our generation is living up to that of our parents and grandparents. But first, from Washington, one of the Capitol's legendary ad men, Carter Eskew, founding partner of the Glover Park Group, and now an opinion blogger for the Washington Post, which he's actually been doing for several years. Carter, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. So, Carter, Mad Men returning this weekend, uh, exactly a year ago, I think you wrote a piece, uh, is Anthony Weiner Don Draper? Uh, <laughs> how have the various years treated both Weiner and Draper as we get ready for this final season of Mad Men? Well, I, if I had a choice, I'd, I'd rather be Anthony Weiner than Don Draper. Uh, I have a sense that uh, Don's trajectory is, um, uh, you know, not very positive. Um, and in fact, I think that we've seen essentially in a, in a way the show has been about, uh, you know, sort of a downward arc of his life. Um, as his um, two selves kind of uh, battle, and uh, the uh, the lesser one is seems to be winning as we proceed. Uh, Weiner, on the other hand, clearly, uh, along with you know, he's produced um, the, you know their two great television shows of the last twenty years, and he's produced one of them. Uh, the other, obviously, being Breaking Bad. Um, I will mourn the loss of. Um, of uh, uh, Mad Men, I look forward to it. Um, you know, I like many people watch it in a binge way. It'll be harder to do that as they split the last season, but I'll miss it. Someone today I said read in the Times, a, a creative director I think said it's become a friend in a way it has, and I'll I'll miss it when it goes. How much does it? I mean, you came up through both New York and D.C. advertising circles. How much did it hit home? And and were there times in which, you know, the the lessons of Draper's firm uh, drove what you and Joe and Chip and Mike uh, put into creating Glover Parker? Well, it's it, it's it's funny that you say that because um, I think a lot sometimes uh, in a in a self-referential way, but perhaps it'll make sense to you is that I I kind of um, uh, entered uh, you know as Don. Uh, for maybe a year, and then I quickly uh, proceeded to Roger, <laughs> and now I'm the guy who you know takes his shoes off um, and um, uh, acts sort of oddly in the office. But um, 
whose name I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but I do think, look, it's a great show, and um, you know, it, it. I think it actually Wiener has he, you know, he's a master of detail and verisimilitude, and uh, that extends not only to things like costumes and. Uh, drinking habits and the famous scene in which the child comes down uh, with the uh, plastic uh, dry cleaning bag over their head um, before the years when they put the thing, you know, this could cause suffocation, which anyone who grew up in the 60s, you know, immediately relates to. But that verisimilitude extends to um, the, the, the work that they do. And I must say, as a fan of the show, I often find uh, and they're not enough of them because I think the other stuff is more dramatic. But the actual business workings are quite interesting uh, in terms of how they pitch clients, of how they try to, in a sense, sell them this notion of confidence that they know, you know, they know the answer uh, and uh, they have it. And I, I really, it's very, very interesting. It's quite different from political marketing, but um, it's uh, it's worth remembering because one of the things that I think Madison ha- Avenue has. Uh, is they do bring a sense of confidence, uh, and uh, and uh, whereas in politics we often default to data, um, and data is not necessarily a substitute for a vision. As you are selling both corporate and political clients this season, 2014, both uh, in the political realm, public policy realm, and, and in campaigns, what are people buying? What what's the bright, new, shiny object of political marketing. Yeah. Well, it is, and it was the word I used a moment ago, it is data. And, you know, uh, there there are some significant changes that are going on. And, um, you know, it's not every presidential cycle uh, that introduces, uh, you know, new uh, techniques, but clearly 2012 uh, is one of them. And the, the, the big uh, move there is the ability to now really uh, uh, much more finely target voters um, and deliver messages to them directly by the overlaying of their media habits with great granularity um, with their uh, voting propensity. So you're now able to go into set-top box data and figure out exactly who's watching what uh, and target it that way. So that is a very fundamental change. And the other thing is, and, and I think... Many know this, but there is a there really is a revolution going on in marketing right now, and it has to do with things like sponsored content, where media properties, for better or for worse, are finding that the only way they can survive is to offer advertisers new forms of you know reaching uh, viewers and readers and clickers, um, and so that's a huge um, uh, advance in a sense for advertisers advertisers because they are able to engage a very specific audience in long-form content, which is something that is, uh, you know, they've never had access to. So that's one, but there are many others. And so it is an interesting time to be in this business. Is Glover Park Group creating long-form content that could be sponsored either by your clients or new new businesses? We are, yes, on on a daily basis. And um, we are, um, the firm has changed dramatically in the last, um, you know, 10 years. Um, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily uh, as far ahead as we need to be, uh, but we're extremely focused on it. And it is a very, you know, as I said, it's a very interesting time. So, yeah, we, we have a, a growing uh, part of our business is essentially the curating and creation uh, and editorial judgment of, of content delivered on behalf of our clients. What's the 
longest, funnest thing that Glover Park Group has created for a client? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. First of all, and, and this is because not... Because I've seen some of your 30-second spots, and we'll play some of those. Yeah. But, but I'd love to dive into you know how you, the real storytelling opportunity that you get yeah, when you get no, into multiple it, minutes. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things, and I, I say this, hopefully it won't sound... It, it's not self-promotion. It's promotion for the people that I work with. I'm, I am truly amazed at the at the amount of work that comes out of that place. We have 180 clients now. We have 160 people who work there, and I don't, you know, uh, as as one of the founders, you know, literally founded in a a little one room in Glover Park. I remember that room. Yeah, yeah, it smelled uh, up the staircase. Yes, up it, the outside it, staircase. Yeah, it, it didn't smell very good. But anyway, the the to to see you know what where where people are taking this business. I, I long long ago lost control of it, and, and I mean that in a good way. Um, so. You know, I I just saw something the other day that we did, which uh, is something for uh, the pharmaceutical industry, in which it it graphically details uh, a uh, the development of a new drug. And for years, right, you know, one of the arguments the pharmaceutical industry has made is, look, it takes a long time to develop new medicines. It costs a lot of money, and there's a tremendous amount of failure. Um, and so this. Uh, you know that argument is you know interesting. You can accept it or not, but when you actually are able to graphically show a pipeline that you know you can interact with and click on various stages and learn about how a drug is developed, where the dry holes are, what the implications are at each step of the process is very interesting. Now, would it interest the general public? I'm not sure, but certainly would interest policymakers that you know. Um, are, you know, follow and regulate and legislate the industry. So th- there's just an example of something that takes an argument that's very old uh, and tried and true and brings it to life in a new way. And that's exciting. And that's you're seeing a lot of that happening right now. And then, of course, the ability for people to interact. Um, you know, somebody said something to me yesterday that I thought was really summarized perfectly the change in what's going on in communications right now, which is the old press secretary model in which... Uh, you, as an agent of your uh, client or your organization, pushed out some content um, that was, you know, usually fa- fairly self-serving, and you hoped that people would pick it up and write about it. And now we've gone more to the feature editor's model of content, which is you're trying to figure out what your audience is interested in, and the and the sort of correlation or or sweet spot between the interests of your audience and the interests of your, you know, your uh, principle. Well, isn't that the perfect example of between two ferns? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, so that's, you know, President Obama is trying to get young people to sign up for right. uh, for right. Affordable Care Act. And, you know, you can only give so many speeches from the podium. But if you get Zach Galifianakis to bring his 15 million viewers to, uh, to watch a six minute riff in which you kind of get the message out, cloaked around this comedic shtick, uh, you know, mission successful by, yeah. by virtue of 7.5 million signups. Well, and you remember this, Josh, because you did, you know, you did events for the White House for years and years. I mean, it is incredible. And I think Clinton, by the way, was probably the first to, I mean, the Arsenio Hall show yeah. was probably the first kind of breakthrough into that. So, um, you know, when you wrote a year ago about is Anthony Weiner, uh, Don Draper, you know, another thing that you've been writing about recently in terms of candidates and politicians who are trying to connect with their audience, sometimes their time is passed and sometimes they make such a colossal mistake and how do they rebuild? 
you wrote about the fallacy of Chris Christie's defense, and Ryan Lisa has this wonderful piece in The New Yorker this week about Christie. But if you if you put on a different partisan hat, Carter Rescue, and try to talk to a candidate who on paper has all the goods to be a crossover appeal candidate, or at least did so uh, before the bridge closer closure scandal. And you wrote this also this prescient piece like Chris Christie did not have a good year right. last year. Yeah. I mean, if if you're tr- coming up to New Jersey to visit a client like you used to do for Frank Lautenberg, but instead you're going to Trenton and talking to Chris Christie, how do you tell him to what do you advise him his prospects are? Yeah, well, it, 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 great question. I mean, I I do have concerns, um, uh, and um, it's interesting because in, in some ways, I think what Weiner is a master at is Weiner understands that um, that character flaws um, are actually uh, almost insurmountable, uh, and that they dictate fate. Okay, that's what we're seeing with Don Draper, right? That's the arc of. Don's tragedy, right? So I worry a little bit about Christie that there's not much I or anyone could say to him because he has a fundamental flaw and uh, however you want to characterize it uh, as arrogance perhaps, um, uh, his bullying nature. I think that's a a really difficult thing for, for him to overcome because it's, it's both, it's essential to his success on one level but it's also, I think, ultimately will uh, pr- predict his his fall because I don't think it it you know migrates from you know New Jersey's a tough and rumble place, right? Um, uh, New Jerseyans have a great sense of pride; they have a real chip on their shoulder. And Chris Christie, not unlike Frank Lautenberg, right? By by the way, who had exactly the same kind of personality, they fit very well with their state. But when they start to move outside their state. Um, I think it becomes much more difficult. And this was before, by the way, uh, he had this whole uh, a bridge issue, um, which also, as you know, everyone has known that's been through this, the whole issue there from the beginning was it's not going to be up to us or Chris Christie. It's going to be up to the U.S. attorney. That's um, right. I mean, let's hear a little bit of Randy Mastro, I think, on uh, this week with Stephanopoulos trying to uh, cauterize the wound a little bit with this um, uh, outside review from Randy's law firm. We treated both David Wildstein and Bridget Kelly exactly the same. They deserved the assessment that we gave both of them about their personal conduct and about their actions exactly the same way because they violated the public trust. And that's what the evidence showed, George. All of it relevant to not only their consciousness of guilt, but their culpability. And in Bridget Kelly's case, if I may say, Bridget Kelly not only sent the email that showed ulterior motive. Carter, if Chris Christie cannot uh, recover from this, you know, your eye is out for your potential competitors for Democratic nominees. Uh, Jeb Bush's star is slightly ascendant, but you know, you're looking for fresh characters uh, as a as a director of casting and as an advertising person. Is there anyone who seems to be fresh enough to capture you know Josh King's vote in 2016 from the Republican side? Well, you know, honestly, um, I don't know. I certainly don't see anyone, and I would say I'm 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 more than a casual observer, but less than a casting director. Um, so I don't really see anyone on the Republican side um, who is new and fresh and different. And I must say, and this will sound partisan, but I think that's becoming very difficult within the Republican Party. 
um, because there are certain, you know, stations of the Orthodox cross that they have to, you know, bow to. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of that is clearly outside uh, the mainstream and is seen as, uh, you know, it turns off a lot of voters. So I, I don't see it. I think, you know, we'll, we'll see, right? We'll, you know, the whether or not uh, this uh, next cycle uh, causes some real reevaluation. But, uh, you know, if anything, I think the parties, and this has been well documented, are getting further and further apart. And the Republican Party, I think, is oftentimes, you know, is, is experiencing, hopefully for them, a temporary period of insanity. Talking about other uh, major Washington figures who were at the focus of uh, climactic political struggles last year and this, I want to hear Carter rescue a little clip from Keith Olbermann talking about the owner of the Washington Redskins. Well, we begin tonight with Daniel Snyder's attempt to silence opponents of his NFL franchise nickname by bribing them. Well, he didn't call it a bribe. He calls it the Washington Redskins Original Americans Foundation, or OAF. The Washington Redskins oaf. Hi, Dan Snyder, Washington Redskins oaf. Damn glad to meet you. That pretty much tells you the whole story. That and the fact that though we only announced it Monday night, oaf has already given out 3,000 coats and some shoes for some boys and girls hoops teams, and it, quote, assisted in the purchase of a backhoe. Carter Eskew, uh, is there anything to revive the uh, the brand of Dan Snyder in Washington, D.C. after the coaching debacle last year that you've written about and now his yeah. latest fumble that you've written about? Well, yeah, as a personal note, I've been a Redskins fan for 50 years, so uh, it's hard to see the, as they say, the once proud franchise in the hands of um, Mr. Snyder. Uh, and I'm a, I've also written that um, the, the toughest PR reclamation job in all of Washington would be to be Dan Snyder's PR person. So the answer is no. I really don't see that there's much that can be done for him. Um, but, uh, you know, good luck to the team. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so Carter, let's um, j- just spend a little while going a little back in time uh, because, you know, I was there sort of uh, in DuPont Circle as the Glover Park group was taking shape uh, in early months of 2001, but it took shape because of an odd uh, piece of political history that you were very much at the center of. So let's uh, rewind the clock now, Carter, to uh, the summer of 2000, Vice President of the United States on the podium in Los Angeles giving his uh, acceptance speech to his nomination. In our democracy, the future is not something that just happens to us. It's something that we make for ourselves together. So to the young people watching tonight, I say this is your time to make new the life of our world. We need your help to rekindle the spirit of America. Believe in our country. We believe in you. And I ask all of you, my fellow citizens from this city, that mark both the end of America's journey westward and the beginning of the new frontier, let us set out on a new journey to the best America, a new journey on which we advance not by the turning of wheels, but by the turning of our minds, the reach of our vision, the daring grace of the human spirit. Yes, we have our problems, but the United States of America is the best country ever created and still as ever the hope of humankind. Carter Eskew, I don't mean to open old wounds, but I've had Morehouse, Feldman, Chip, I, I think as many people as I could possibly find who were at the War Memorial in Nashville that night recounting their experience. But uh, 
life could have been so different had uh, had election night in 2000 been different for you, couldn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it, it really is amazing because one of the, the, the frustrations, and I, I take the responsibility for this um, in 2000, was that we really were never able to convince uh, the American public uh, or the press that there was a real fundamental choice in the election. Um, and, uh, you know, we tried, and... Um, and, you know, in some ways, interestingly enough, you know, Paul Krugman, who was just beginning his column, was one of the only guys who actually latched on to um, the fundamental difference as manifest in what both sides would have done with the um, s- surplus. But, you know, uh, the fact is now, um, whatever it is, 14 years later, we certainly see the difference. And I think the the country would be fundamentally different. And just to name two things, uh, you know, the, Iraq would not have happened. Um, and I can say that with great certainty because, you know, Al made a speech well before the invasion saying that it was the wrong war at the wrong time, the wrong place. And uh, the other thing that would be different is our fiscal situation and the investments that would have been made. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, in, you know, it, it's one of those things that actually gets worse in retrospect as opposed to better. But it did allow you and the guys to sort of take your lives in a different direction as soon as you were able to, you know, start to recover from those wounds. Yeah, it did. And look, um, I am, uh, and you you happen to know them, I work with a great group of people. And, um, you know, when I started this company, I said, look, I want to do three things. I want to make money. I want to work with people that I really like. And I want to do work that matters to the clients. Um, and we've been able to do that. Um, and, you know, that's an incredible... I'm incredibly fortunate um, to have that. And um, one of the things that I learned, it took me a long time to learn it, but what you're looking for in your partners are not people who do the same thing as you and reinforce you. You're looking for people that stretch you. Um, and so that's what these guys have done for me. So i um, very grateful. I want to hear one of your Glover Park Group pieces, the Repower America ad, and then talk about climate change because that is probably other pieces of work that a President Gore would have done that is still unfinished at this point. Why join the fight to repower America with clean energy? Because millions of people believe it will make a better future for our children. Because climate change threatens our national security. We have a responsibility to protect God's creation. Because I want jobs that are made in America. Because some of America's most trusted companies know clean energy will create new industries and new jobs. Because I want America to lead the way. So add your voice. Add your voice. Add your voice at repoweramerica.org wall. Carter, that's, uh, tell me about that piece. Yeah, that piece was done uh, around the, um, ultimately, the failed cap-and-trade legislation. We passed it in the House. Uh, it fell short in the Senate. Uh, and again, a tremendous loss because probably the best time in a generation to have addressed climate change in a meaningful way. Um, and... Um, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate, right? Because uh, now, five years on, we're, you know, we've emitted X trillions of tons of more CO2, and the, and the problem is is more urgent than ever. So that was the context of that piece. And and some of the writing you've done recently about about climate change. Where do you see the the issue going from here? And are you still sort of representing these interests and trying? Uh, to take it in a new direction, maybe in a, with with the arrival of a new president in 2017. Yeah, uh, we are. Um, our, our firm does a, has a fairly substantial so-called green energy practice, and we still do a lot of work for 
the former vice president who, you know, basically the, his mission in life ha- has not uh, altered, um, and he is focused uh, with incredible energy on the climate crisis. Um, you know, it's interesting um, uh, in talking with him. You know, he he's always um, uh, uh, people say, well, you know, boy, he, he's right about the problem, but it, it you know, he he doesn't necessarily uh, have the solution. Um, of course, that always makes me laugh because I feel a little bit like, you know, Paul Revere. Paul Revere said the British are coming. He necessarily have to tell people what to do about it. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, in talking with Al, he's uh, actually in some ways optimistic um, uh, about what's happening um, because while he's, you know, he's, he's concerned about the role of the U.S. government, uh, and uh, the Chinese as the world's biggest polluters um, at a governmental level, he sees what's happening, um, you know, in at the uh, uh, corporate level in terms of um, investment. He sees what's happening to the price of uh, alternative energies like uh, photovoltaic, which is now uh, actually on a cost basis uh, equal to or below uh, fossil fuels in many uh, different geographies. So there are some positive things happening. I think the real question is, you know, we're in a race, um, and will it happen soon enough? And there's a lot of evidence that um, already major, as you know, major parts of the world will be dramatically and unalterably affected by this. Um, and so we're already in a pickle. Uh, the question is, how, how bad is it going to be? Carter, ask you, you mentioned two things that... Uh would have been different had uh, had the outcome been different on that November night in 2000 and the recount uh, ended in a different way. One of them was uh, the economy, but the other one was um, uh, what happened with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was in Austin, Texas this week, uh, coincidentally with the anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, mm. but as these things so often play out, when Air Force One leaves Washington, there are other things to do when a president uh, is headed toward Texas. There was some fundraising to be done in Houston, but there was also, unfortunately, a return to Fort Hood and another memorial ceremony honoring the uh, the victims of a tragic shooting. I want to hear a little bit of President Obama from Fort Hood earlier this week. And to the men and women of Fort Hood, it has already been mentioned, part of what makes this so painful is that we've been here before. This tragedy tears at wounds still raw from five years ago. Once more, soldiers who survived foreign war zones were struck down here at home, where they're supposed to be safe. We still do not yet know exactly why. But we do know this. We must honor their lives, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Carter Eskew, one of your most recent pieces for the Washington Post has been the repercussions of Iraq and Afghanistan tying back to this tragic event in Fort Hood. What were you trying to say? Well, I think I I was struck by a statistic that I'd read the day before the Fort Hood tragedy that's been out there for a while, which is the number of U.S. servicemen, veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan that are committing suicide on a daily basis. Uh, And, you know, look, these two wars are unprecedented in our history for a variety of reasons. One of them is the triage on the battlefield, which in each war regrettably takes amazing leaps forward. I say regrettably only because in some ways, I guess it's it's 
good to survive, but some of the people that are surviving are going to uh, literally be uh, invalids for the rest of their lives. Um, you know, the, these are 19 and 20 year old boys for the most part who are coming home often to new wives uh, who will face, you know, 60, 70 years of 24 um, hour uh, care. Uh, for their loved ones, assuming the marriages sur- even survive. And when they don't, obviously it falls onto other family members. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a terrible, uh, it, it's a terrible thing to imagine what that must be like. And they're, they're, not, you know, they're not a handful. There are thousands of, of, of people that are in that situation. And then secondly, obviously, um, the, uh, the depression uh, and anger uh, that goes along with that um, from, you know, uh, from the, the nature of these wars, right? It's very different, I think, from, uh, and I think it's probably consistent with guerrilla wars in the past, but even more so in this case. Um, and uh, also, obviously, the, the, the way in which we tried to do this with an all-volunteer army created incredible stresses on that force. So, yeah, that's what I was trying to do and, and simply saying that, um, you know, just mentioning the fact that Fort Hood is another example of how we as a society will be dealing with this problem for the next, you know, 75 years. The contributions that you make to uh, our conversation through the Washington Post Carter Rescue are so valuable and they've been so prolific over the years. Most recently, that piece on Iraq and Afghanistan, not very long, but very pointed. And as you were telling me earlier about your three goals in creating the Glover Park Group in 2001, about making money, working with people that you wanted to work with, and also doing work that was important, sometimes that's inconsistent in in D.C. firms with also making a public stand and being very vocal with your thoughts and sometimes pissing people off, Carter. (laughs) And so you've been at least uh, for several years through your pieces in the Post, uh, you've been out there. Uh, is what's the what's your feeling on on now? In addition to the goals of the firm, Carter Eskew really being drawing a line in the sand on so many issues and doing this work. Uh, great question. Um, I would say, look, uh, my first and largest responsibility is to my firm, uh, and the Washington Post understands that. And um, I try not, and I don't know that I have written anything that would. Uh, you know, be inimicable to the firm's interest, although the firm is fairly tolerant of, um, you know, this this side hobby that I have. Um, and also, I think that, uh, you know, my clients are respectful that I have views as an individual that may be different from my views as an advocate. So, uh, so far, so good. I'm very thankful to The Post um, for, that, for that forum. I, I find it incredibly interesting started my career as a writer. It's great to have that kind of outlet. Um, And it's also great, as you say, to be able to express my opinions in a fairly unfettered way. So one more piece that we'll touch on before we let you go, Carter. Uh, You wrote uh, just about a week ago, The Power of Words. We've talked about Chris Christie, but I will quote some of the uh, personalities and the words that you put next to them and then get your opinion on one more who's uh, personality has burst through again this week. Jeb Bush, no fire in the belly. Rand Paul, disruptive. Paul Ryan, slick. Rick Santorum, angry. Marco Rubio, inexperienced. Bobby Jindal, short of expectations. Rick Perry, new glasses, some brain, same brain. Scott Walker, asterisk. Mike Huckabee, passed by. Joe Biden, nothing to lose. Hillary Clinton, ambivalent. 
and there's been increased chatter over the last couple of days because of his uh, his energy and ambition over his one year as Secretary of State, John Kerry. Should Hillary Clinton not run again? Should Joe Biden uh, uh, decide not to run? Would you think that the t- 2004 nominee might give it one more try? Uh, definitely, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I, I, you know. What would be the word you'd you'd, you'd connect with uh, John Kerry? Uh, you know, um, hmm, good, good, good one, um, John Kerry. Um, I guess I would say uh, probably persistent. Um, there's a doggedness to Kerry that I think uh, is appealing. Um, so, uh, and I think it served him well as Secretary of State. So, yeah, I definitely think he would run again. Although, frankly, and I think most of his friends would say this, he's in the perfect job right now. Yeah, perfect job for now, and, and huge hills still to climb for him with the next uh, oh, in the yeah. next three years if he yes. can manage it. Yes. Hey, Carter, thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics, uh, and uh, I've been such a fan for so long, and. Uh, continue to read everything you, you write and uh, also a huge fan of the firm. Well, thank you, Josh, very much. Lots of fun. Thank you. Take care. When we come back, Professor Harvey Kay, his new book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. This is POTUS. We're back now at Polyoptics. I'm Josh King. Welcome back to the show. We're on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. And we're with Harvey Kay, the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, also author of uh, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. His new book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. Harvey, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Josh. We just had um, Carter Eskew on the show lamenting the uh, the storied franchise of the Washington Redskins. You come from another home of a storied franchise. How do the Green Bay Packers look in this offseason headed toward camp? They look fabulous. That's all I can say. They look fabulous. I mean, I, I think we had a shot this past year at the Super Bowl if we hadn't lost our quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, for so much of the season. I know some people have left the team this year. But I think we've got some incredibly good people coming back, a guy like Cobb, uh, Jordy Nelson. It's going to be wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Uh, are you a season ticket holder at Lambeau? We have, you know, it's tough to get hold of season tickets, and we've been in Green Bay for 35 years, and only in the past few years do we get access to season's tickets. But I have to tell you, we're lucky enough they're on the 45-yard line. Um, Harvey, I was uh, really pleased to get your book and to be able to read it uh, because it uh, it brings it, it calls into uh, to me a real conflict that I've had uh, over the years of things that I've done uh, because you mention in the fight for the four freedoms what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great Ronald Reagan's speech at Ponte Hoc uh, and I was um, working at the White House for President Clinton uh, in 1994 when we went back for the 50th anniversary and that really did give rise to Steven Spielberg, Tom Brokaw, seeing all these incredible stories and chronicling them. Uh, how did you narrow in on the four freedoms and looking, taking a very different ta- look at the greatest generation from what Spielberg and Brokaw did? Well, when I, I loved the work that they did. I mean, I read Brokaw. I read Stephen Ambrose's books. I, I went to the movies. I watched the Ken Burns documentaries. And I, but I kept wondering about why there was no mention of what they fought for. 
the, the idea of the citizen soldier is, is, is right on target, as, as Ambrose puts it, but it does never, he, none of them ever mention the fact that Roosevelt pro- proclaimed the four freedoms based on eight years of the struggle against the New Deal and the joblessness and the industrial chaos and everything else. And never, they never mention the fact that Americans themselves had been involved in rebuilding the United States in the 1930s and understood what was at stake and moreover understood what they could still accomplish. So I thought, why is there no mention of this? In fact, over and over again, historians all fell into line arguing that, well, in World War II, Americans fought for each other, for their buddies, which is absolutely true. But they constantly missed the fact that Americans knew the war was about the four freedoms, not just defending the four freedoms, but enhancing them even during the war and especially after the war. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. They, they knew it. They couldn't recite the four freedoms. Americans are never good at quizzes, as my students readily show. But the fact is they carry with them this, these, sets, these ideals, this vision, this promise. And there was no mention whatsoever. And the other thing was that conservatives, as well as liberals and progressives, generally, they generally didn't understand why Americans were so eager to celebrate a generation. I think they were missing out on the degree to which we were yearning to renew those four freedoms. Well, I want to go back to uh, 1994 because uh, with the director of communications, Don Baer, and the speechwriting staff at the White House, me, in terms of putting on some of the logistics of these events. I want to hear a little bit of President Clinton uh, speaking to the assembled veterans at Natuno Cemetery. Fifty years ago, the first Allied soldiers to land here in Normandy came not from the sea, but from the sky. They were called Pathfinders, the first paratroopers to make the jump. Deep in the darkness, they descended upon these fields to light beacons for the airborne assault that would soon follow. Now, near the dawn of a new century, the job of lighting those beacons falls to our hands. To you who brought us here, I promise, we will be the new pathfinders, for we are the children of your sacrifice. Thank you. Harvey Kay, the job of lighting the new beacons falls to our hands. And before we go back to the period from 1932 to 1945, uh, let's talk about this current generation and whether the promise that President Clinton made of us being the children of their sacrifice and us lighting that beacon has truly been borne out by maybe the final chapter in your book, it is time for the country to become a fairly to become fairly radical for a generation. That's what FDR said when he came into office. But uh, we've had over the last uh, 20, 20 some odd years, you know, two Democrats, one Republican. Uh, we are in the last three years of this presumably transformative president. Where are we? Well, here's the problem. I think first start, Americans still carry those ideals, that promise of the four freedoms. I think it's very deeply ingrained. I think one of the one of the really great achievements of the greatest generation, the men, the women of the 30s and the 40s, who actually were also the men and women, let's not forget, who made the 1960s as progressive as they were, in spite of the fact that my own generation of the 60s often claims that. And I think I think that we still carry that. They imbued it in us. They endowed us with it. The problem is we've forgotten what they came to understand 
And that is pretty much what Roosevelt himself stated early in the 1930s. He said, you know, in the midst of this Great Depression, we need to become fairly radical for a generation. And what he had in mind is not just that a president should be elected and pursue a set of initiatives, you know, legislative uh, uh, tasks to be, to be accomplished and then initiatives to be, to be carried out, but it's also a matter of engaging his fellow citizens. That's what Roosevelt knew. He had to engage them in the labors of the New Deal, the CCC to transform the environment, the WPA to, build, to rebuild the infrastructure, the National Youth Administration to get young people to stay in school and get educated and go on. He, he needed to engage them. He also knew that he had to empower them. National Labor Relations Act, crucial in enabling workers to organize unions and guaranteeing that the federal government would stand behind them when their employers opposed them. Now, what have we seen? We've seen two ambitious, brilliant, I mean, these are two smart Democrats who've been, who've been in the presidency, Clinton and then Obama, laid out great visions about national health care. Well, Clinton laid out national health care. Obama did not speak, do, do national health care. We know that. It's an Obamacare uh, version. But the fact was that neither one of them seemed to grasp that if you're going to make things happen, you have to have the confidence and faith in your fellow citizens to engage them in the task and not, nearly, not merely negotiate with Congress, not merely negotiate with your opposition. You must mobilize people's labors. You must mobilize their hopes and aspirations. You have to bring them out. Quick example, spring of 2009, as Obama began to develop his plans for uh, Affordable Care Act, what we needed at that time was for Obama to, to sit down with the AFL-CIO, civil rights groups and others, and begin to ask about how they could become more directly involved in making his legislative agenda happen. What ended up happening? The Tea Party occupied the public square, not working people. Yeah, but there were very fundamental reasons the Tea Party occupied the public square in the summer of, uh, of 2009, because Obama uh, went away and, and did not engage in the dialogue and uh, news abhors a vacuum and the Tea Party found that uh, July, August and moving toward Labor Day of 2009, they could take over these usual uh, congressional town halls and make them their own. And the other question I have, uh, Professor Kay, is you talk about how Roosevelt was able to make that generation radical, but he also had, and you give me the right numbers because I don't have it, the majorities in the House and Senate for at, at his high watermark was what? Well, the exact numbers might have been something like three to two or even better. But here, listen to this. We came in in 2008. Well, not we. I'm, I mean, the Democrats came in the election in 2008. They already held the Congress since 2006. In 2009, they take office. They have a president. They are positioned to make things happen. Right there, okay? Now, he might well have called upon the AFL-CIO to hold a gathering in Washington, a march on Washington. You know, let me give you a good example, rather than just yeah. cite all these things. The story is often told that when Roosevelt was in the White House, reformers would come to the White House to persuade the president to endorse, to support, to take on as his own their initiatives, their ideals. And usually the answer he gave them was, look, you've persuaded me. Now make me do it. Now, he didn't mean make him do it. He was ready to do it. But he knew very well, he knew damn well, that he needed to get Americans engaged to make Congress act. Don't forget, you, you say he had those numbers. The committees in Congress in the early 1930s, in fact, through the 30s, were dominated by Southern Democrats, white supremacists, 
These guys were racist, and they were ready to take charge of all these initiatives and turn them in other directions. And they were ready in the late 1930s to work very closely with Republicans up north. Roosevelt faced, for much of his presidency, actually a very skeptical and hostile Congress. But what he had done is he empowered Americans to make things happen. We didn't see that in Clinton. We didn't see that with Obama. So, Harvey, let's now go back to this period that you write about so passionately in The Four Freedoms, what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. But it begins a little bit before FDR and how the seeds are sown. And you write, although the election of 1928 uh, did not put a Democrat in office, um, Al Smith's nomination was pathbreaking in many ways. I want to hear a little bit of the newsreel from, from that election. Election year 1928. Democrat Al Smith becomes the first Roman Catholic to be nominated for the presidency. I can with complete honesty make the statement that my nomination was brought about by no promise given or implied by me or anybody in my behalf. But Smith's religion generates waves of protest. The Ku Klux Klan marches its ugly banner of prejudice through the streets of Washington. The campaign against Smith is devastating. Herbert Hoover wins the election with a six million vote margin. Harvey K., you talk in your book about Joe Alsop and the way he chronicled wasp culture of America, and you have Calvin Coolidge saying, the business of America is business. So Al Smith was historic in many ways, but couldn't get over the over the goal line at Lambeau Field, could he? No, <laughs> he could not get over the goal line at Lambeau Field, even though the majority of citizens in Green Bay, Wisconsin, happened to be Catholic themselves. Um, now, but here's the thing. I mean, by his running, Catholics... Jews and others started to believe that change might be possible. And, but the person who really believed that change might be possible was, of course, Franklin Roosevelt. And we often talk about Roosevelt in terms of the New Deal and the initiatives in a political and economic sense. We talk about World War II and the, and the, and the military leadership he afforded. But it's also the case, as, as, you're, as you're now implying, that what Roosevelt understood is that was a, a far more diverse country than a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, in spite of the fact he came from white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Hudson River Gentry family. And he brought to Washington, well, he brought to Washington the first woman cabinet member, Frances Perkins, as Secretary of Labor. He brought to Washington as the Secretary of Treasury in the second year, Henry Morgenthau, who was only the second uh, American Jew to hold a cabinet office. He brought to Washington people who, at the lower levels of the cabinet, African-American. Um, I mean, what I love telling my students is that his most famous uh, legislative uh, writing team was Corcoran and Cohen, which sounds like a vaudeville team, right? Um, this was a man who began to create a government that reflected America. And, and I think, you know, I think we've come, I mean, look where we've come, what we've come to, how far we've come on that. And that, those are the kinds of initiatives that Roosevelt began as well. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Franklin Roosevelt from his first uh, inauguration speech uh, in 1933. We must act, we must act quickly. And finally, in our progress towards a resumption of work, we require two safeguards against a return of the evils of the old order. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments. There must be an end to speculation with other people's money. And there must be provision for an adequate but sound currency. 
So, Harvey K., that's January uh, 1933, and it's going to be another eight years before we're going to hear the first utterance of the Four Freedoms. What's Roosevelt trying to do between 33 and 41 that leads up to the Four Freedoms? What's he trying to do? He's trying, first of all, to establish some kind of relief for those who needed it. He's trying to create an economic recovery. He's trying to create a new America by way of massive reconstruction. You know, as I said before, the CCC, the WPA, the PWA, uh, the Rural Electrification Act. I mean, I could go on and on. And, and he does this by mobilizing American energies. And last, but by uh, not even least, but in fact, maybe the most important, he wants to reform America. I mean, he wants to make America the democracy it proclaimed itself to be in with. When he said, let's make America rad- fairly radical for a generation, he meant we need to fulfill, we need to redeem, we need to advance the ideals of the founding fathers. I mean, you know, you listen to those, uh, those excerpts of the speeches by Roosevelt. This was a fighting president. This was a president who knew what he was up against. This was a man who was willing to welcome the hatred of the, the richest folk in America who organized against him in the American Liberty League and started accusing him of something of either fascism on the one hand or communism on the other, at least a dictatorship. He fought them. He said, I welcome their hatred. And, and as you move toward 1941, it's not just him, but it seems to be so many different groups in America looking at what's happening in Europe, looking at what's happening in Asia. And as you write, 1941 was basically a fight for the right to fight. To, because this business interest in America, the status quo, no interest in sending the boys overseas. We needed this arsenal of democracy to sort of change the thinking of, of what America needed to be. Right. I actually believe that the fight for the Four Freedoms the, the four freedom speech, the January 6, 1941 State of the Union address, is really the call to arms, not the speech he gave the day after Pearl Harbor. That It's this speech in which he projects, look, we need to create an arsenal for democracy. We need to provide a Lend-Lease program for Britain and its allies. And moreover, he says, you know, it may well be, you know, people imagine that a defense effort means we need to sacrifice or at least suspend the achievements of the past eight years of a social democratic order. He says, no, we need now to build on them all the more. We need to fortify ourselves, enable ourselves to confront the kind of war that may well be coming. And then he proclaims this vision, this promise of four freedoms. Again, I say freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear. And he says, moreover, this may be an international vision, but it's grounded in American history. He had an incredibly strong and powerful sense of American history, and a, a deep faith in God, and also a powerful confidence in his fellow citizens that he brought to the White House, that enabled him to carry out the New Deal, and then led him to proclaim these four freedoms as a vision for Americans in the future. For the remainder of our conversation, Harvey, we'll, let's hear a little bit of uh of Franklin Roosevelt. We'll hear two freedoms, first two freedoms and the next two freedoms, and we'll talk uh, interstitially about what they all mean. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. So those first two freedoms, you talk about the actual speech writing process that Roosevelt and his aides went through in the week prior to that State of the Union message. Uh, what was the struggle to get these to get this 
uh, verbiage exactly right. Well, they went through seven drafts of speech, and I read the earlier drafts, and they were actually quite good themselves. And they had a great team of uh, Robert Sherwood and Harry Hopkins and Samuel Rosenman, and they were spending hours on this address, but they knew how significant it was. And then they, they got together one evening with Roosevelt himself, and they were working away at it, and then there's this silence. And Roosevelt leans back in his chair, and he's thinking, and, and as Samuel Rosenman, his aide, says... It was almost embarrassing, the silence. And all of a sudden, he leans forward and he says, you know, take this down. And he sort of just rolls it out, these four freedoms. Now, he had spoken vaguely of these things before. And you can even find them sort of sprinkled. But it's clearly articulated at this moment. And you can imagine the question they had in their minds, everywhere in the world? And he explained, he said, well, we we, we can do these things, basically. Now... When Americans heard the speech, Hopkins is basically saying this guy doesn't talk uh, out of it, out of his mouth for no reason. He actually believes this is possible. Right, and some might have thought he was losing it. Perhaps I mean that's that, that was grandiosity. But it is the case that he really did see what they had accomplished in the past eight years, and imagined Americans could set an example to the world and enable the world to accomplish these things. So let's hear uh, freedoms number three and four. Third is freedom from want which translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. But freedom from fear also creates the arsenal of democracy and the creation, among other things, of 40 billion bullets. 40 so, billion bullets. Isn't so that great? before there's going to be a <laughs> reduction of armaments everywhere, there's going to be an increase in the arsenal of democracy. Right. No, there's no question about it. I mean, war it may well be necessary at times to make peace, and especially when you're facing fascists and imperialists. And I'm, look, I mean, I, I'm not a pacifist. I despise war, but I'm not a pacifist. And Roosevelt fully knew that. Roosevelt knew very well that the war was coming our way, and most Americans did as well increasingly. They didn't want to be in it, but they had no doubt that they were going to get ready for it. You know, it's interesting. When he delivered that speech, Americans immediately sensed that they had a crisis and they were going to have to confront it. But it's also the case, when he delivered that speech, Republicans did not applaud all of the lines. Southern Democrats did not applaud all of the lines because they understood the implications. They understood the implications that this was going to make workers... Uh, have a greater say in industrial life. They knew, Southern Democrats, that this promise of freedom from fear meant that African Americans were no longer going to have to suffer the way they had been suffering ever since the days of slavery. And that's why they didn't applaud those sections. And by the way, Republicans voted against war preparation at that time. And Southern Democrats throughout the war joined up with the Republicans to try to limit the very things they had previously had to endure during the New Deal. I mean, the struggle was twofold. The struggle was against fascists and imperialists abroad. And the struggle at home was also very clearly against those who did not believe in the New Deal. So, Professor Harvey Kay, we will have a new president January 2017. Uh, 
should that president echo Roosevelt and say it's time for the country to become fairly radical for a generation? And what prospects does he or she have to make that a reality? Thank you for asking that. I've been waiting for someone to ask me that question. Absolutely. I think that I think that the candidate that many of us will support will be that candidate who says it is time to make America fairly radical for a generation. And by that, I mean progressively radical. Harvey K. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. Thank you very much for joining me on Polyoptics and good luck to the Packers this season. Thank you for the opportunity and I'll keep you in mind if we're winning. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.